Amen. Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And as uh, before we get started, I just want to say a special thanks to all those that came out uh, throughout the course of last week to help with the uh, projects here at, as we prepare for our new school year. I want to give a thanks to those that, that, uh, that worked hard. There's a lot of interesting things that I saw. I actually saw a printer that was about 15 years old get dropped and smashed, and it was pretty cool to see that in slow motion. You know, with the iPhone, you can record it in slow motion, so all the, the pieces split together, so it was cool. But continue to keep our school lifted up in prayer. I know tonight we'll be praying for them, and I definitely want to invite you all to come back out tonight for that as we uplift this school, praying that they would be fruitful in this year as they labor to impact these kids for Christ. Would you, would you pray with me now, church? Father, give us a, a vision of eternity, God. God, you are eternal. You are the God who was and who is and who is to come. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the gravity, the weight of the blessings that await us in eternity, and that as a result of that, God, it would impact how we live our lives now. Lord, may your Holy Spirit move in this place today, Lord God. May you comfort where comfort is needed. May you encourage where encouragement is needed, God. Bless this time for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About, <laughs> about 15 years ago, probably longer than that, it was, uh, we'll say it's about in the mid-90s, I was a high school student here at Northwest, and uh, so it was probably more than 15 years ago. Uh, I ran track. I went out for the track team. And my 10th grade year was unsuccessful. Didn't make it to state. I was pretty disappointed about it. So 11th grade year comes, track season's back again. And during the spring break uh, that we had, we had a track coach that said, listen, every day of spring break, I want you to be at the Traz Powell Stadium to, to work out. And it was a difficult workout. This, this guy was, a, I don't know, he was a sadist, I think. I mean, he really, <laughs> this was a, he was a Bahamian coach, and I can still hear his voice in my head. He used to call, my, my nickname is Yoni. He used to call me Yoey. He would say, Yoey, drive your arms, drive your arms, boy, you know, <laughs> run, you know. And I still hear it in my head. And we would get to the track, and, you know, as with any stadium, there's stairs. He'd have us running the stairs, and it was, it was, a lot, it was very painful to do that. Um, I, my, my, my event was the 800. I ran two laps around the track. That was, but he would have us run the mile. I said, I said Coach, why are we running the mile if, if my race is the 800? He said, because if you can run four times around the track and be okay, you should be all right with two. And I'm just like, all right, you know. But... 
I missed out last year on getting to state. And so in my 11th grade year, there was this idea that, okay, I want to make it there. I, wanna, I want to, to make it to, the, to those uh, competitions. And every morning I woke up at 7.30. I got out of bed. I, I, I was there at the track at, at, at 7.30. I went through the difficult workouts and the pain and the, and the, you know, the soreness that resulted from that. Why? Because I was motivated by something in the future. And the motivation of that thing in the future influenced what I did in that moment. It influenced why I got up out of the bed at 7.30. What, what teenager does that during spring break? I did. I wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to be in that. I wanted to make it to state. I actually did end up qualifying and getting to state. Um, and this is kind of where the analogy breaks down because I finished like 17th. But, <laughs> I did run my fastest 400 uh, ever, which, which was pretty cool. But the, <laughs> the idea is that there was something greater that was motivating me to do what I was doing. And, and J.C. Ryle, in his book, Practical Religion, says about eternity, we have no eyes to see it fully, no line to fathom it, no mind to grasp it, and yet we must not refuse to consider it. God has spoken of it, and we have no right to turn away from it altogether. This is the first series of messages, it's just two, this is the first one, part one, that I'm calling Shaped by Eternity. And it's important for me to, to define what I mean by the phrase shaped by eternity. Shaped by eternity means allowing the realities of the age to come to influence our behavior in the current age. Another way to say it would be letting the realities of heaven influence how we live on earth. Simply put, it means having an eternal perspective that speaks to and informs every aspect of our lives while in this body, on this planet. Dr. Scott Haifman, who is the professor of New Testament Greek and exegesis at Wheaton College, he puts it this way. He says, our hopes determine our habits. Let me say that again. Our hopes determine our habits. He goes on, made for God's presence, we are a future-determined people. In order not to lose heart now, he says, the world to come, not this one, must captivate our minds. So, church, an eternal perspective then is one that places such a profound value on the world to come that it actually shapes what we do in the world now. But, but why is that important? Why does that matter? It's important because we live in a day and age where great value is placed on now, gaining things now in this life. The things of this world seem so attractive and necessary and permanent, don't they? They give the illusion of bringing satisfaction and peace. We also live in a context that portrays Christianity as a means to getting the best things in life now. Unfortunately, the health and wealth gospel, also known as the prosperity gospel, 
falsely teaches that the Christian life is one of ease and comfort and pleasure and increase. But the reality is that this life is not the place where we receive the eternal blessings of the kingdom to come. But where we often go through times of great difficulty and suffering. I think Pastor Rich Holland says it best when he says, Christians oftentimes place on this world expectations that can only be met in heaven. We, we place on this world expectations that we will only enjoy and realize in heaven. We are not here as our final resting place. This is not our final destination. Heaven is. Being with the Lord is. This is where it's important to have that, that eternal perspective. The Christian life then is not characterized by wealth and success and ease, but by a cross that we are called to take up and follow Christ with. Jesus says it this way, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And, and Jesus doesn't have a, a martyr's complex here in terms of, you know, there's, there, this is not the idea of self-abasement, but there is an idea that we need to deny ourselves what we think this world can bring us, the pleasures of this world, and take up our cross and follow him. The ESV study note on this passage is very helpful. It points out that Jesus, his paradoxical statement demands two different senses of the word life. Whoever lives a self-centered life focused on this present world, i.e. would save his life, will not find eternal life with God. He will lose it, his life. Whoever gives up his self-centered life of rebellion against God loses his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, will find everlasting communion with God. He will save his life. An eternal perspective sees the immense value of losing your life now for the hope of saving it later and being with Jesus forever. And church, though there is suffering in this life, it's not without a purpose. I've entitled this, this, this sermon, Purpose in, in Suffering. We do go through suffering in this, in this world, but it's not without a purpose. The suffering we experience as believers is preparing us for what Paul refers to as an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't even imagine what's in store in the life to come. And so we don't always understand why God does what he does. I mean, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 makes that clear. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, or neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't always understand what God is doing. But we can rest assured, knowing that he is working all things together for our good. The best illustration that I can give of that, that I've heard, is that of the quilt. On the back end of a quilt, 
All you see is the knotted, mangled entanglements, right? But, but when you flip it over on the other side is this beautiful pattern being knit together. So from our vantage, the trials and tribulations that we experience seem like knots and entanglements. But on the other side of our difficulty and suffering, there is God at work conforming us to the pattern of his son and preparing us for a future that words could never express. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared, prepared for those who love him. The reality of what is to come far outweighs the trials and tribulations we face while on this earth. And God is using those trials and tribulations to shape and to mold us for a future of unparalleled joy in his presence for all eternity. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. The Bible says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of God. I want to do three things this morning. I want to first explain the context of the culture in Corinth. 
And then I want to give three observations from that, from our text. And then I want to give some application to our text. So when you think about Corinth, what Paul is writing here, this letter, this epistle to the Corinthians, Corinth was a very wealthy city-state. Opulence and wealth and status and notoriety. Because of where they were positioned geographically, they were able to regulate and manage trade. And so there was a lot of commerce which brought wealth to the city. Theologian Timothy Savage in his book, Power Through Weakness, provides an analysis of how Paul and his ministry would have been viewed in Corinth. He does this by delineating the ways in which contemporary Greco-Roman culture evaluated social status. How were they evaluating social status? And the significance of religion for everyday life. I heard one author say that, I was reading in my study, Corinth was like the entertainment center of Greece. I think it would kind of be like our Las Vegas in a sense. It was, if you wanted to have a good time and, and that's where you would go. It was Corinth. Corinth was very uh, wealthy. But there were five things that they valued. The list is not exhaustive, but these things really point to what the Corinthians valued. Number one, they valued a rugged individualism and self-sufficiency. This is the idea that, you know, we, we, I did this. I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps, right? Another way to say that would be, I started from the bottom, now I'm here. That's what he's saying. That's what they value. I did this. Apparently nobody listens to Drake, but that's fine. <laughs> but that, that's, what, that's what the value was. It's, it's this self-sufficiency, this me, I did it. The second thing that they valued and emphasized in that culture was wealth as the key to status within society. Wealth as the key to status within society. That sounds very familiar. The third thing was a self-display of one's accomplishments and possessions in order to win praise and gain approval from others. So it was about, I want others to, I want approval. I want others to see how successful I am. I want others to see how much I have. I want them to value that. I want them to give me praise. And so that resulted in a competition for honor, which led to boasting about what you had, which was the fourth thing. Fifthly, there was a pride in where one lived as a reflection of social status. It was all about social status. It sounds very similar to the context in which we live today. But this is the context that God called Paul to minister in. Moreover, there were false teachers who were distorting the gospel into a message of freedom from suffering and difficulty. And instead of validating their ministry by the gifts of the spirit, they were, they were asking the teachers, these false teachers were asking for letters of recommendation from other churches to sort of validate who they were. Paul says that in chapter three, verse one, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? These guys were looking to get these letters to sort of verify and affirm their ministry. And I use that term very loosely. 
What made all this worse was that these false teachers were also demanding money as evidence of the validity of their value and of their message. They wanted money from the people. That also sounds familiar. That also goes on in our context today with these televangelists who ask you to send money and you'll receive blessing and this deeper spiritual experience. That's what these false teachers were promising the Corinthian believers. So in order to get the money from the Corinthians, these false teachers had to attack Paul. I mean, look at what Paul said in in, in chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Paul wasn't trying to monetize the gospel. He wasn't trying to earn money from the gospel in a way that would be uh, disingenuous to the people. His concern was for the people. Paul was in a position where his the legitimacy as an apostle was being challenged severely, not only by false teachers, but also by a small minority in the church. And the whole reason they were challenging Paul's apostleship, they said, you know what? You suffer way too much. I mean, you're supposed to be authorized of God. God can't take better care of his people. I mean, look at you. You're broke down. You suffer way too much. You're too weak and unimpressive in your public speaking to be a spirit-filled apostle. This is the context that Paul does ministry in. And the first thing I want you to notice, if you look at verse 7, the first point I want to make is this. God's power is displayed in suffering. His power is displayed in weakness. In the Corinthian culture, it was about me and my power and my ability Look what Paul says. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure there is a reference to verse 6, where he says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about the gospel here. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And that reference to jars of clay would have been familiar to the Corinthians because in, in, in ancient times, jars of clay was a reference to weakness, fragility. You're fragile. Paul has this treasure, this, this amazing information in a jar of clay, and that jar of clay is himself, his body. And this is exactly by God's design. God wanted it that way that the gospel resides in a jar of clay to show that the power does not reside with Paul, but belongs to God. The power of the gospel is so great and its glory is so profound that it must be carried in a jar or the people would start worshiping Paul. We have this, this, this treasure in jars of clay, this amazing information. The gospel means news, this amazing news, and it's housed in this jar of clay. And what's interesting about jars of clay is that they leak and they chip and they aren't very attractive sometimes. By design, they're simply functional. Just the, in, in, in uh, ancient times, they would put very expensive things in these jars so that nobody would be the wiser. These, these sort of insignificant jars. Let me put it in there. This thing is great value. Nobody will think to look at it there. 
And these Corinthians, and you, you go back to the context, the Corinthians were looking at these false teachers and saying, man, look at how well he speaks. Look at how, look at how amazing he is. Look at how much opulence and wealth he has. He must be authorized. But you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul says this. Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wasn't telling you about how to get rich. I wasn't telling you about how to have supernatural increase. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, and I was with you in weakness, right? And in fear and much trembling. I mean, in a, in a society where our value is placed on how well you speak your rhetorical flair. Paul says, I came in weakness. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When you're going through a difficult time in your life, God's power is displayed in that suffering and you make it through. Sometimes you, you wonder, God, what are you doing? What is going on? Where's the hope? But God's power will do two things. It will either deliver you from that suffering or sustain you in that suffering. So there's either deliverance or the sustaining power. But it is from God. That's what Paul wants the people to know. It's not me. I didn't get myself through this situation. God did. God is the reason why I, I'm still here. And he, he goes on in verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. How can that be? That's a paradox. How, how is it that you have so much pressure on you, which is what that word afflicted means? How do you have all this pressure on you and you're not crushed by it? How is that possible? People look at you in the workplace and they see what you're going through or in your, your friends see what you're going through. You may be going through a time of difficulty and they're saying, what, what is it? How are you not like just absolutely crushed? He says, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Back in uh, 2008, I think it was right around the time the market, the economy got really bad. Um, and shortly after that, there was the, uh, the Madoff scandal, this Ponzi scheme. My father was telling me about an acquaintance who lost a great amount of money. I think it was something like $5 million he lost in this Madoff Ponzi scheme. And my dad said he, this guy went to Publix, bought a knife, went to his car, and took his own life. Took his own life. Because his God wasn't able to deliver. His God had died. The money that he put all this prize on, just like the Corinthians did, was dead. And so he's now crushed. But as believers, 
we have a, we have a hope. We know that when we go through intense difficulty, God will sustain us. God will deliver us from it or sustain us in it. He is able to do that because he is powerful. That's why Paul can say, I'm afflicted in every way. And if, if you don't believe that, <laughs> flip over to chapter 11. In every way, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. I did the math. That's 195 lashings that he got. He says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers who would threaten his ministry and said he wasn't really an apostle. The whole book of 2 Corinthians is really Paul's apology for his or his defense of his apostleship. That's really what it is. And he's saying, listen, I've gone through all this in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food. I mean, he was afflicted in every way, and yet he's not crushed. He's still able to continue. He's still able to, to, to press on. Perplexed, but not, not in despair, not worrying, what, what's going to happen now? Persecuted, but not forsaken. God never forsook or left uh, Paul. God was with Paul. He says, struck down, but not destroyed. How is the divine power expressed in Paul's life? How is this divine power expressed in Paul's life? Because in all of the things that I just read about, he is still there. He's still able to continue. And I'm saying to you this morning, you might be going through a time of difficulty where you feel afflicted, where you feel perplexed and confused about what's going on. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? God, I don't understand what's going on. But it's just like that quilt that I mentioned, all these knots and entanglements and afflictions. But on the other side of that, there is God at work. He's working it out to conform you to the image of his son. Paul says, always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. And that's really uh, a point back to verses 8 and 9 with the affliction but not being crushed. In his affliction, he carries around the dying of Jesus. But in his uh, not being crushed is the resurrection life of Jesus that is actually being manifested in his body. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. I just read that. You saw that. And if you read the book of Acts, you've seen even more. Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There's a benefit to, to Paul's suffering. If Paul doesn't go to these different places, then the gospel doesn't go out. Paul is going all over and, and, and starting churches and preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the benefit of his hearers so that when they hear it, they too may come to life. 
Now, Paul, and I want to be careful here. I don't want you to think that God somehow has this sadistic uh, mindset that, man, I'm, I love to watch him suffer. I just want to watch my, my people suffer. I don't want us to be sadotheistic, to use a word. God doesn't derive joy from our suffering. He uses that suffering for his purposes. And in Paul's case, now Paul's suffering was unique. I mean, I don't think any of us have been adrift at sea for, for a day. I mean, that's one of my phobias. I don't like the ocean very much. I mean, I like the ocean, but I don't like to be in the middle of it at night. <laughs> I mean, you ever been on a cruise and you, you, you step outside and it's just this complete, it looks like an abyss, you know, it's just dark. Um, it's scary. I'm not saying that you're going through anything as severe as Paul is. I mean, Paul's calling is unique to his apostleship. He's an apostle. And then if you look at Acts, Jesus said, I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He will be my instrument before kings and Gentiles and his own people. So his suffering is particular, but then you, you see that there's benefit to it for others, just like the suffering of our Savior gives us an eternal benefit. Jesus suffered for you and for me. He bore the cross for our sake. Why? So that we may have eternal life and freedom from sin. God's power is displayed in suffering. All of this is to be attributed to God's power to sustain him in the midst of adversity. There is a sort of a Christological perspective if I, if I can, to Paul's suffering. Paul's suffering in his body is symbolic of death, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is why he is not crushed when afflicted or driven to despair when perplexed. Again, um, Dr. Haifman, he says, Paul's suffering is a revelatory vehicle or the revelatory vehicle through which the knowledge of God manifest in the cross of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit is being disclosed. Paul's whole point of suffering is to disclose the death and the, and, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it's visibly seen in his life. When you look at the word always being given over to death, it actually, the word there is necrosis. It's not actual like death, it's dying. Always being given over to the dying. We always carry the dying of Jesus in the body, is what Paul is saying. The suffering. It's always present with Paul, so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest. The second thing I want us to see this morning is suffering emboldens our faith. Suffering emboldens our faith. Look at verse 13. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. He was quoting Psalm 116, verse 10 there, and the writer of that psalm was saying how much he was suffering. The same thing. Paul identified his ministry in light of that psalm, but he wasn't suffering as an evildoer. He was suffering as one who is righteous, but he's confident that God will deliver him. If you, if you can, flip over to Psalm 116. Look at verse 8. Actually, you can look at verse 3 first. In verse 3, it says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. But look at verse 4. Then I called on the name of the Lord. 
Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. David says in verse five, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And then in verse eight, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then in verse 10, he says, because of this, because you, 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 you've, you've delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, because I believe, so I spoke. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I believed, so I'm speaking. I believe in what Jesus can do because I've seen it. He's brought me through a difficult time. And when you are in a difficult time and you see the power of God at work and he brings you through it, then you can say, you know what? Jesus is real. Jesus is for me. Jesus is the life. Jesus provides deliverance. And you want to tell others about it. It emboldens your faith to speak and say, you know what? I know you're going through a tough time, but trust me. God, God is there. He sees it. He understands. He's working it together because, let's be honest, it doesn't feel good when you're going through difficulty. It doesn't. I don't want to stand up here this morning and give this idea that we're, we, you're happy about it. But I do want to point out that Scripture does say we can rejoice in suffering. Romans 5 talks about that, that we can rejoice in suffering because suffering brings about endurance. Endurance brings about character, and character brings about hope, and hope never disappoints. But that comes through suffering when we're going through that difficulty. But when you suffer, you, you can know that God is there with you. And when he, when he either delivers you from that suffering or sustains you in that suffering, you are emboldened by that. You want to tell others about it or be of service to others. Look at what Paul says in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. So why? Why does God do that? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by. God is there giving Paul this comfort, sustaining Paul, so that Paul can now be of comfort to those who are going through difficulty. It's the same thing with you this morning. You've gone through something. I don't know what it is. I don't know your personal situation. I know what God has brought me through. I can testify to that. And I know that it was by God's power to deliver me and to sustain me that I can now go to others that struggle or go through difficulty. I can say, hey, God is, God is here. He's real. He loves you. He has a plan for you. So for the believer, God is shaping us for eternity. For the non-believer that experiences suffering, it may just be God's call. Like, hey, come, come to me. Or to get his attention. As somebody once said, the only time somebody will look up to heaven is when they're on their back. Maybe God has to do that sometimes to some people and maybe even to believers. Let me not paint that picture and say that believers can't slip and, 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 and do wrong. And God has to get our attention, but it's different. When we go through suffering, I'm not talking about suffering as an evildoer. I'm talking about suffering as a righteous person that you endure. It is a part of Christianity. And when you go through it, it emboldens your faith. 
Paul says, we also believe and so we also speak. Paul knows something, though. Paul knows that the same God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise him. So there's hope there. Look at verse 14. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring with you into his presence. But there's a key word in that verse that I want to point out to you this morning. And that word is knowing. Knowing. When you go through suffering, there are three questions that you should ask yourself. And this is not, these three questions are not mine. But I heard them, they were a blessing to me. And I think they can be a blessing to you. There's three things you need to ask yourself. Number one, when you go through a difficulty, what do I feel? What do I feel? Number two, what do I think? But that third question, what do I know? What do I know? Because the first question, if we just stop there, we all know feelings can change and, and you know, God, I feel anger right now. God, I feel resentment to you right now. And that leads to how we think. God, I think you don't love me. I think you don't care about me right now. Are you there? But that third question, what do we know? Paul says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. There's, a, there's an eternity in mind with Paul. There's an eternal view in mind with Paul. Knowing that, when you go through difficulty, and how do we get that knowledge as we, as we look at our lives? We know more about God through Scripture. So the more we know about God, the more we can understand how to act in our suffering because we can say, wait a second, okay, I know how I feel right now. I know what I'm thinking right now, but here's what I know about God. I know that God is good. I know that, that God works all things together for good. I know that God loves me. I know that God sent his son to die for me. I know that. And so even though I'm in this situation right now and I don't understand what's going on, I know based on the authority and the promises in God's word that I can trust God, even though I don't understand my situation. I can, I can walk by faith and not by sight right now in this thing. I don't understand it. What do I feel? What do I think and what do I know? But now when you get to the what do I know and you've resolved that God is good, that God will never leave you nor forsake you, now you can reverse the order. Your knowing does what? Knowing influences your thinking. And then your thinking, now that it is under the, 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 the authority of Scripture, thinking would, will, will affect how you feel. It's really having a heart check. Because all of that that I just said, the knowing, the thinking, the feeling, guess where that all takes place at? In your heart. What do you know? Paul says knowing. He wants to pr promote an idea of community with these Corinthian believers. Remember we talked about individualism, it's all about me. He says, no, listen, it, it's us. We, he says, the Lord will present us, right? He says, knowing this, the Lord who raised Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. But Paul's suffering was a benefit to others. Look at verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we know that suffering, God's power is displayed in suffering. Secondly, suffering emboldens our faith. 
But then thirdly, and lastly, suffering prepares us for glory. Look at verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. That, that means we don't give up. Why don't we give up? What is it that is, is keeping us from giving up? He says, Through our out, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In light of everything that I've just said, Paul is saying we don't give up because we know something. We know that this, he says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, look at that, light momentary? When you're in affliction, does it feel light? When you're in affliction, does it, see, does it feel like it's momentary? It feels like forever. God, why am I going through this? Why can't I find a house? God, why, what is going on? Why, why can't I, I find a mate? Why can't I, or whatever the case may be, whatever your circumstance is, it doesn't feel light. God, I lost somebody I really care about. God, I'm hurting right now. And it, 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 feels, it, feels, it feels heavy. But look at the play on words in verse 17. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight. Light weight. You see that? The, the, the light affliction that he's experiencing is preparing him for an eternal weight of glory. You see, church, and this, this, this is kind of the point of the whole message, the sermon, the series. When you look at your current situation, whether you're going through suffering or difficulty or when things are good, but particularly when you're going through suffering, it, 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 if you look at it with an eternal perspective, it will seem light. The only way Paul can say that is in light of eternity. You can't say that if you don't have an understanding of what is to come. I mean, it'll just seem more burdensome. I met a young man this morning. I don't know if he's here. I pray that he is. Met him this morning at the store. I was getting a Red Bull because I drink Red Bull. And um, I got it, and he, he immediately walks into the store, and he says, man, I, I'm, I'm struggling right now, man. I'm going through a tough time. It, it, I mean, I'm, I'm on my way to church, and, and he, here he is. Man, I'm, I'm going through a tough time, man. I don't know what to do, man. I'm, I'm just, I'm at, I'm at my wit's end. And I said, man, let's pray. And we pray. Um, and then, you know, I, I tell him, come with me. Come, come to church with me. I'll take you to church. And he got here. And then he, he was concerned about uh, some other things that were on his mind, his, his, his girlfriend and, and, and all the other things there. And he was wanting some, some money to, to go ahead and help take care of his girlfriend and, and his situation. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, man, right now, what he's going through must feel really, really heavy. Really heavy. And I don't know his, I don't know him personally. I don't know his situation. Maybe a lot of the heaviness from his situation is because of the choices he's made. And I said, man, I'm going to, you know, I'll give you something. I'll give you a little something. But here's the thing I want you to see, man. It's, I don't want to bribe you to get to church. But I want you to see that even if I gave you this, this money, it, it, it's not going to do anything. I mean, in the whole scheme of things, your situation is not going to be fixed. Because the real problem 
is inside. The real problem is in your heart. There's separation from God. And I can give you this, this money or, or whatever. I think the gas station attendant got him a, got him a shirt and, and some socks and whatnot. But the real problem is you need Jesus. You, you, you need the Savior. And you're looking at these things that you think, if I give you this, it'll, it'll fix your situation. It might temporarily, but eternally, is it worth it? I mean, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I mean, you know, and, and again, in his situation, he was just wanting some, some help. But the help I can provide is only temporary. As Paul says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're temporary. They're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They last forever. Paul does not lose heart because of eternity, because of what's to come. It's why he's able to go through and endure what he endures. Paul can look at his suffering as light and momentary, only in light of what is to come. Paul does not look at what can be seen, his current circumstances. He looks to what cannot be seen, which are eternal things. So there's just three things I want to point out or apply. Number one. When we suffer, we must trust God's power to either deliver or sustain us in the suffering. When you go through suffering, whatever that may be, whatever degree that is, trust God. Don't look to your own uh, ways. Don't, 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 don't look to, to, to try and fix it. I did this. Trust God in the suffering. Secondly, when we suffer, we must trust in God's promise that he's with us. Afflicted, but what? But not crushed. Why? Because God is there. God's power is there. God is with you. So we trust in God's power to deliver or sustain. Secondly, we trust in God's promise that he's with us. But then thirdly and lastly, when we suffer, we trust in God's plan that he is preparing something much, much greater for us. And, and the knowledge of that will influence and inform how we live in this world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And in doing so, securing for us eternity, God, with you, eternal life. We give you praise. Help us to trust in you when we go through difficulty. Help us to trust in your plan, God, when we go through trials and tribulations. God, we give you praise. You are sovereign. You are in control. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.